0: Before I start the show, I'd like to put my anxiety and fear of judgment on display for all to hear. As I was listening over my last episode to make certain it had uploaded properly, I cringed in horror at my tone as I mentioned my wife being excited about getting socks for Christmas. I meant to convey a sense of wondering amusement, but it legit sounded vaguely judgy and kinda dickish. I swear, I was delighted by her excitement. In fact, I bought her more socks for Christmas because she loved the ones I gave her for her birthday, and if hearing this is making you go, what the fuck, because you have no idea what I'm talking about, it just lets you know how crushingly fearful I am that anyone would for a second think I'd look down on or think unkind thoughts about my wife because I love the shit out of her. Anyway, that's been weighing on my mind for literally weeks. If you know, you know, and if you don't obsess over little things you might have done that people may judge you for, even years later, I envy you. On a less neurotic note, I will be at JordanCon next month from Thursday April 21st until Monday the 25th. I'm anxious and introverted until I'm not, so if you'll be there, please come and say hi and have a socially awkward interaction with me. I might be hanging out with other content creators. Trust me when I say this just means a bunch of terrified introverts are clinging to other terrified introverts who they know due to cross-promotion and collaboration. A content creator is just a nerd who talks into a void. Most of them will show up to JordanCon and think, Ah, A party! Quick! Who do I know? Save me! Go everywhere with me, even to the bathroom! From some of the fallout on Twitter last year, it sounds like it came across as standoffish. So if I end up coming across that way, no, it's not because I think I'm too cool to talk to you, it's because I feel too awkward to talk to anybody new, at least until a switch flips and suddenly I'm not. I guess that would make me an omnivore. Anyway, come say hi, I promise that I want to talk to you. And with that said, I hope you enjoy the episode. won't fall until the Podcast of the Dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. I'm super over being the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord. Welcome to the 31st episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Robert Jordan introduces us to Teleron Riyadh and the Dragon Reborn, but he waits to teach us about it until the Shadow Rising. In today's episode, I explore the methods he uses to build his world, look at both and Wayne's experiences as dreamers, and go deep into what the world of dreams means in the Wheel of Time. Since Chapter 9 of The Eye of the World, R.J. has made it a point to let us know that dreams and dreaming are significant in the wheel of time. The boys throughout the first book share haunting dreams that are made creepier by the fact that they're far more real than dreams have any right to be. The unreliable narrator treats us to their confusion and horror, as mostly Rand and a couple of times Perrin try to navigate these disorienting scenarios, and since no one knows what's happening, all rj really has to have us understand is that a dreams are important b bad guys have scary power there c things that hurt you there can leave you wounded upon waking and a possible fourth point he'd want us to take is that there is a psychic connection between creatures of the shadow like rats in the dream and their counterparts in the waking world that bowlesmont can exploit but we only see something like the trick with the rats where a shamail breaks their backs once so either it's never repeated or R.J. didn't keep it in his canon of the rules of the world of dreams. I suspect it's the second, which is totally fine, because things are very muddy in the first two books when it comes to the world of dreams, and the most significant takeaways a first-time reader might have is that a character they don't yet know isn't the Dark One has incredible power there, and that Rand wakes up with injuries on more than one occasion, such as pricking his finger as he's dreaming that he's being chased by the devil through an uber-goth skull-and-thorn maze as he's on the spray with Tom and Matt heading down the Aranel to Whitebridge, or, more permanently scarring in the Great Hunt, when Balsamon approaches Rand in dream mist in the portal world and brands him by turning his daddy's sword red-hot. Once the heron, even in dreams... So it's made clear from the start that this dream realm is going to have real-life consequences, but the magic and the rules of it are incredibly fuzzy until we get into The Dragon Reborn. And then RJ begins to clean up the concepts that are involved with dreaming and actually start to do some world-building with the world of dreams. But even in The Dragon Reborn, Teleron Riyadh seems very dreamlike. We see it first in Perrin's really strange wolf dreams, full of mist and forsaken, and dead wolves distantly whispering of danger, where he finds himself in places of bridges hanging in air, the things that look like the Escher painting that are probably like what the ways look like when they're not dark. And even once we learn a bit about the world of dreams from Varen and do our first semi-informed exploration of it through Egwene's eyes, it's still much more surreal than the Teleron Riyadh that we come to learn about in detail in The Shadow Rising and the World of Dreams as we experience it throughout the rest of the series. Even with the Teleron Riyad of the Dragon Reborn being a lot more dreamlike than it is from the Shadow Rising onward, we can figure out quite a few things from Egwene's first trip into the World of Dreams where she uses the stone ring that is given to her by Varen. She falls asleep with the ring on for the first time, and she wakes up in this beautiful meadow that's filled with butterflies. It's very Disney. She's in a Disney princess dress, and she practically has bluebirds twittering around her, and it says, "'So this is Varen's Teleron Riyad,' she said. the Dale's world of dreams. It does not look dangerous to me.' But Varen had said it was. Black Aja or not, Egwene did not see how any Aes Sedai could tell a lie right out. She could be mistaken." but she did not believe Varin was. Just to see if she could, she opened herself to the One Power. Sidar filled her. Even here, it was present. She channeled the flow lightly, delicately, directed it into the breeze, swirling butterflies into fluttering spirals of color, into circles linked with circles. Abruptly, she let it go. The butterflies settled back, unconcerned by their brief adventure. Murdral and some other Shadowspawn could sense someone channeling. "'Looking around, she could not imagine such things in that place, "'but just because she could not imagine them did not mean they were not there. "'And the Black Aja had all those Tarangriels studied by Corian and Nadil. "'It was a sickening reminder of why she was there. "'At least I know I can channel,' she muttered. "'I'm not learning anything standing here. Perhaps if I look around.' "'She took a step and was standing in the dank, dark hallway of an inn. "'She was an innkeeper's daughter. She was sure it was an inn. "'There was not a sound, and all the doors along the hall were shut tight.' Just as she wondered who was behind the plain wooden door in front of her, it swung silently open. The room within was bare and cold wind moaned through open windows, stirring old ash on the hearth. A big dog lay curled up on the floor, shaggy tail across its nose, between the door and a thick pillar of rough-cut black stone that stood in the middle of the floor. A large shaggy-haired young man sat leaning back against the pillar and only his small clothes, head lolling as if asleep. A massive black chain ran around the pillar and across his chest, the ends gripped in his clenched hands. Asleep or not, his heavy muscles strained to hold that chain tight, to prison himself against the pillar. So her first trip in the world of dreams, where she really has no idea what she's doing, she ends up finding Perrin, and Hopper, who is guarding him, gets aggressive, so she backs out. It says, The door swung shut before her face, and total darkness enveloped her. She could not see, but she felt sweat beating on her forehead, not from heat. Light, where am I? I don't like this place. I want to wake up. A whirring sound, and she jumped before she recognized a cricket. A frog gave a bass croak in the darkness, and a chorus answered it. As her eyes adapted, she dimly made out trees all around her. Clouds blanketed the stars, and the moon was a thin sliver. Off to her right through the woods was another glow, flickering. A campfire. So, she goes from Perrin and immediately to Rand, and with no destination, on her first trip into Teleronriad, having her steps take her to the Tevirin that are also there seems pretty true to the rules of RJ's world, even though the world of dreams that he is riding in the Dragon Reborn is a very rough draft version of it. But the fundamentals are there, and if we give our Jason credit that he had the basic rules outlined in his mind, it's fair to say that he builds a good enough foundation in Book 3 that we can believably attribute the roughness of the concepts and the way they're portrayed to an issue of perception of the world of dreams by untrained and unreliable narrators. Maybe Perrin, because he doesn't know how to navigate the world of dreams or keep himself out of it, was simply dreaming himself in the room of his inn. And he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's exhausted, and because you can manifest just about anything in Riyadh, he makes real what might have been a subconscious visualization to chain himself and hold himself in check. And then Hopper guards him because he's too young and too new. So maybe there's not such a huge difference between the world of dreams and The Dragon Reborn and the world of dreams of The Shadow Rising. And while there are distinctions, because looking at it from a writing perspective, R.J. obviously did a lot more world building and thought it out a lot more and kind of smoothed things out, you can, if you give the story some grace, say, well, Egwene and even Perrin in Book 4 know quite a bit more than they did in Book 3. And so their perceptions have changed based upon what they have learned. And because of that, I wanted to wait until The Shadow Rising to begin really exploring Telerandriod, because it is in this book that we finally start learning the mechanics behind dreams and dreaming. RJ begins to clean up these very muddy concepts, which is something he really has to do because two of his four main POV characters are Dreamwalkers, And while R.J. mostly prefers having his characters learn the hard way, because showing is much more interesting than telling, and having characters learn through trial and error makes for an engaging and thought-provoking narrative, having ideal dreamwalkers join the story in Book 4 to add their vast knowledge of the world of dreams to R.J.'s world-building is terrific. It lends itself to heavy exposition at times, but it's so useful in fleshing out this fascinating aspect of the Wheel of Time. And because he is so good at making devices or scenes or conversations do double, triple, quadruple duty, he uses the ideal wise ones to teach us about ideal culture, explore subcultures specific to the ideal wise ones, and develop the characters of Amis, Bear, and Malayne, all of whom end up being minor secondary characters, with lots of dialogue and lots of interactions with our main characters. All of that is wrapped up in the exposition that they give us about the world of dreams. During Egwene's first lesson as bear is giving her a very general overview of the world of dreams, it says: "Almost any one can touch Tel but few can truly enter it. Of all the wise ones, we four alone can dream walk, and your tower has not produced a dream walker in nearly five hundred years. It is not a thing of the One Power, though Aes Sedai believe it is. I cannot channel, nor can Siana, yet we dream as well as Amis or Melaine. Many people brush the world of dreams in their sleep. Because they only brush against it, they wake with aches or pains, where they should have broken bones or mortal hurts. A dreamwalker enters the dream fully, therefore her injuries are real on waking. For one who is fully in the dream, dreamwalker or not, death there is death here. To enter the dream too completely, though, is to lose touch with the flesh. There is no way back, and the flesh dies. It is said that once there were those who could enter the dream in the flesh and no longer be in this world at all— this was an evil thing, for they did evil. It must never be attempted, even if you believe it possible for you. For each time, you will lose some part of what makes you human. You must learn to enter tel Riyad when you wish, to the degree you wish. You must learn to find what you need to find and read what you see. To enter the dreams of another close by in order to aid healing. To recognize those who are in the dream fully enough to harm you. To- Egwene listened intently. It fascinated her, hinting at things she had never suspected were possible. So I love that two of the four dream Dreamwalkers are not channelers. Having those two, having Bear and Siana not be able to channel, lays a believable foundation for Perrin's talent. Being able to enter the world of dreams is not something of the one power, and while Bear's connection to it is also a mystery, we do learn that for Perrin, his connection must be due to the fact that according to Moraine, wolves live partly in it, when Perrin, in The Dragon Reborn, finally asks her what she knows about his ability to talk to wolves, she mentions having come across a scrap of something about his sort of situation while she was digging through all of Vandine and Adelius's manuscripts. It says, Mostly, she wrote of dreams. Dreams can be dangerous for you, Perrin. You said that once before. What do you mean? According to her, wolves live partly in this world and partly in a world of dreams. "'A world of dreams?' he said disbelievingly. Moraine gave him a sharp look. "'That is what I said, and that is what she wrote. "'The way wolves talk to one another, the way they talk to you, "'is in some way connected to this world of dreams. "'I do not claim to understand how.' "'She paused, frowning slightly. "'From what I have read of Aes Sedai, who had the talent called dreaming, "'dreamers sometimes spoke of encountering wolves in their dreams, "'even wolves that acted as guides.' So there's a canonical explanation for what makes Perrin a dreamer, but not so much for everyone else. Which, you know, that's okay, because not everything can be explained, and having certain things about the magic system or about the origin of certain talents be mysterious is realistic. Reasonably, not everything can be explained. If that were the case, there'd be nothing left to discover, so I'm okay with that. But there is a real value in having non-channelers be dreamers. I like Daniel Green's videos, and in one of his early ones, where he's loving on Watt, he mentions that one of the things he enjoys about The Wheel of Time is how it has both a hard and a soft magic system. There's a beautiful novelty to having a soft magic system, and the space to accommodate it wrapped up inside a world of hard magic. Archie has given us a play within a play, if you will, gifting us a much more malleable world with rules that are completely different from the rules that govern the One Power a world infinitely more powerful than the waking world, and far more dangerous. It's a place where thoughts can kill, and that is a place that would be incredibly deadly for someone like me, because I am someone who is so easily distractible and a daydreamer. I would have a terrible time in Teleron Riyadh. Because channelers who dream can use the One Power in Teleron Riyadh, they give it more weight than it has any right to in that place. Dreamers like Bear and Perrin aren't so limited, which is why Perrin is able to, in the giant fight in the White Tower and the Towers of Midnight, shrug off balefire that would totally have zorched a channeler who was locked into the rules of how Sidine and Sidar must work, even a channeler who is a powerful dreamer like Egwene. Egwene is like, how did that not kill you? And Perrin's like, it's just a weave, you know, because a person who doesn't channel but can work in the world of dreams thinks outside the box. A person who can channel's thinking is more likely to be constrained by what they know to be possible. So, before the show started, and I'm sorry if you are someone who hated the show, but I am going to continue to occasionally refer to it or speculate about it because I did like it. I thought overall the writing was pretty good, and I am interested to see going forward how certain themes are going to be presented. So, if it's a deal-breaker, I'm sorry. If you hate it, clap your hands over your ears. I, I don't know what to tell you. But before the show, there was a certain debate about whether Rafe Judkins would write Teleron Riyadh or Dream stuff out of the adaptation, since trimming it out would cut a decent amount of text from material that you need a good bit cut from in order to be able to feasibly adapt it to television. I felt like it wouldn't be possible for them to do that just because dreaming is so central to Perrin and Egwene's abilities, especially Egwene, because in a pinch, Perrin can just be wolf boy, but being a dreamer is fundamental to Egwene. Yeah, you know, she's the Amaralyn Seed, and she's a powerful channeler, but her dreamwalking ability is her specialty, and so that was my argument for why they could not get rid of dreams and dreaming. But Seth, from Watt's spoilers, made an even more significant point. And the point that he made is that in the world of the Wheel of Time, which is a world constructed by Robert Jordan, a physicist, Teleron Riyadh is the third constant. We see in The Dragon Reborn when Egwene goes to Varen to get information on the Black Aja, and Varen gives her all of the papers with all of the info about the sisters and the info about the Tarangriel that they stole, and she also gives her Corianna Nadale's dream Tarangriel, before she hands her the stone ring, it says, I understand from Anaya that you might become a dreamer. The last was and Nadeel, 473 years ago, and from what I can make of the records, she barely deserved the name. It would be quite interesting if you do. She tested me, Varen Sedai, but she couldn't be sure that any of my dreams foretold the future. That is only part of what a dreamer does, child. Perhaps the least part. Anaya believes in bringing girls along too slowly, in my opinion. Look here. With one finger, Varen drew a number of parallel lines across the area she had cleared, lines clear in dust atop the old beeswax. Let these represent worlds that might exist if different choices had been made, if major turning points in the pattern had gone another way. The worlds reached by the portal stones, Egwene said, to show she had listened to Varen's lectures on the journey from Tome and Head. What could this possibly have to do with whether or not she was a dreamer? Very good. But the pattern may be even more complex than that, child. The wheel weaves our lives to make the pattern of an age, but the ages themselves are woven into the age lace, the great pattern. Who can know if this is even the tenth part of the weaving, though? Some in the age of legends apparently believed that there were still other worlds, even harder to reach than the worlds of the portal stones, if that can be believed, lying like this. She drew more lines, cross-hatching the first set. For a moment she stared at them. The warp and the woof of the weave. Perhaps the wheel of time weaves a still greater pattern from worlds. "'Straightening, she dusted her hands. "'Well, that is neither here nor there. "'In all of these worlds, whatever their variations, a few things are constant. "'One is that the Dark One is imprisoned in all of them.' "'In spite of herself, Egwene stepped closer to peer at the lines Varen had drawn. "'In all of them? How can that be? "'Are you saying there is a father of lies for each world?' "'The thought of so many Dark Ones made her shiver. "'No, child. There is one creator who exists everywhere at once for all of these worlds.' In the same way, there is only one Dark One who also exists in all of these worlds at once. If he is freed from the prison the Creator made in one world, he is freed on all. So long as he is kept prisoner in one, he remains imprisoned on all. That does not seem to make sense, Egwene protested. Paradox, child. The Dark One is the embodiment of paradox and chaos, the destroyer of reason and logic, the breaker of balance, the unmaker of order. And a bit further it says, She drew a shuddering breath. Varen, said I, what does this have to do with being a dreamer? The Dark One is bound in shale ghoul, and I do not want to even think of him escaping. But the seals on his prison are weakening. Even novices know that now. Do with being a dreamer? Why, nothing, child, except that we must all confront the Dark One in one way or another. He is prison now, but the pattern did not bring Rand Thor into the world for no purpose. The dragon reborn will face the lord of the grave, that much is sure— If Rand survives that long, of course, the Dark One will try to distort the pattern if he can. Well, we have gone rather far afield, haven't we? Forgive me, Varen, said I, but if this, Egwene indicated the lines drawn in the dust, has nothing to do with being a dreamer, why are you telling me about it? Varen stared at her as if she were deliberately being dense. Nothing? Of course it has something to do with it, child. The point is that there is a third constant besides the Creator and the Dark One. There is a world that lies within each of these others, inside all of them at the same time, or perhaps surrounding them. Writers in the Age of Legends called it Teleron Riad, the unseen world. Perhaps the world of dreams is a better translation. Many people, ordinary folk who could not think of channeling, sometimes glimpse Teleron Riad in their dreams, and even catch glimmers of these other worlds through it. Think of some of the peculiar things you have seen in your dreams. But a dreamer, child, a true dreamer, can enter Teleron Riyadh. So in our world, we have universal constants, like the speed of light and gravity and the charge of an electron, etc. There are a bunch of them. In Ranlan... There's the creator, and the dark one, and Teleron Riyadh. And when you look at it like that, while we explore and learn about the world of dreams throughout the whole series, realizing that it has equal weight with the very entity that Rand was born to fight is kind of epic. I love that both Perrin and Egwene are dreamers. It allows Jordan to show us many of the same things about the world of dreams, but from different angles. Perrin gets visions in the actual dream world, whereas Egwene has her dreamer dreams that are full of meaning. As Egwene gets ready to enter Teleron for the first time in The Shadow Rising, she's doing it for the first time without the ring. It is just after the Trollocs have attacked, and she, Nynaeve, and Elaine have gathered together inside her room. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do, because they've been struggling this whole time to determine, are they going to go to Tanchico? Are they going to go back to the tower? So she's decided to scout out Tanchico in the world of dreams in hopes of getting a clue to aid them in their purpose. And she's lying back in bed, getting ready to fall asleep, and she's thinking about the dreams that she's had. It says, She had dreamed of Aiel fighting each other, killing each other, even throwing away their weapons and running as if they had gone mad. Matt wrestling with a Shanzhen woman who tied an invisible leash to him. A wolf, she was sure it was Perrin though, fighting a man whose face kept changing. Galad wrapping himself in white as though putting on his own shroud, and Gowan with his eyes full of pain and hatred, her mother weeping. They were the sharp dreams, the ones she knew meant something. They were hideous, and she did not know what any of them meant. So R.J. kind of refreshes us with the types of dreams that she has as he first goes to start really talking about dreams and dreaming again in this book, which isn't until chapter 11, which is called What Lies Hidden. When it comes to Perrin, the first time we see the World of Dreams through his eyes in Book 4 is in Chapter 28, after he, Gaul, Loyal, Fa'ielbane, and Chiad have gone through the Ways and come out of the Waygate at Menethrin, They're camping near the Waygate, and Perrin has decided to go into the World of Dreams to do some reconnaissance. And it says, A patch of sky against the mountains darkened suddenly, became a window to somewhere else. Rand stood amid swirling storm winds, laughing wildly, even madly, arms upraised, and on the winds rose small shapes, gold and scarlet like the strange figure on the Dragon Banner. Hidden eyes watched Rand, and there was no telling whether he knew it. The odd window winked out, only to be replaced by another farther over, where Nynaeve and Elaine stalked cautiously through a demented landscape of twisted, shadowed buildings, hunting some dangerous beast. Perrin could not have said how he knew it was dangerous, but he did. That vanished, and another black blotch spread across the sky. Matt, standing where a road forked ahead of him, he flipped a coin and started down one branch and suddenly was wearing a wide-brimmed hat and walking with a staff bearing a short sword blade. Another window, and Egwene and a woman with long white hair, were staring at him in surprise while behind them the white tower crumbled stone by stone. Then they were gone, too. Perrin drew a deep breath. He had seen the like before, here in the wolf dream, and he thought the sightings were real in some way or meant something. Whatever they were, the wolves never saw them. Moraine had suggested the wolf dream was the same as something called Teleron Riad, and then would say no more. So, RJ will often have their visions and dreams kind of complement each other. He uses Perrin to cover all the foreshadowing that he couldn't get to with Egwene, and Egwene, who has what more or less is book-learning... She has a formal education, even though, until she goes to the Aiel Waste, the one person who presumed to educate her only had a little bit of knowledge to give, which is still more knowledge than Perrin has. The most he knows is that Moraine told him it might be called Teleron Riyadh, it may be the same place that I said I dreamers go. Egwene at least knows that her dreams are supposed to mean something, and that dreams that feel sharp and clear mean something, because that's part of what a dreamer does. Perrin is more of a primitive, and I'm using dictionary.com's definition 14b, a naive or unschooled artist. Egwene has some idea of the parameters of her talent. Perrin follows his instincts and does what he feels. He looks at his visions and he's like, yeah, I suspect that they're meaningful, but he has no more vocab or info beyond that. Perrin and Egwene are both largely self-taught and Arja uses this learning from a place of ignorance to show, not tell, in the narrative. We do get a small amount of exploration of Teleron Riyadh in The Dragon Reborn, mostly from Egwene's perspective as she uses it to try to find the Black Aja, but the real exploration and subsequent world-building happens in Book 4. The world of dreams is an amazing and versatile tool, Before this book, we've mostly seen the Forsaken make use of it. They have meetings there, or they spy on each other. They torment their followers, or give them instructions, or kill them. Now our dreamers are fumbling through, learning by doing, as they use the world of dreams to look for clues and conduct reconnaissance. Egwene goes into Teleron Riyadh for the first time in this book to try to see if there are any clues about the Black Aja in Tanchiko, so that the girls can finally know... Where do we go? Do we follow the clue Amiko says that she overheard, that there's something dangerous to Rand, or do we go back to Tarvalin? So, Egwene takes the one book in the whole library in the stone that has some useful pictures of Tanchico, specifically pictures of the giant mammoth skeleton in the Museum of the Panarch's Palace. She's able to use that picture to get herself to the Panarch's Palace in the World of Dreams, which right there is already some cool-ass world-building. She looks at some of the artifacts, she notices this angriel, and she actually sees the collar and bracelets that are dangerous to Rand, and she stupidly grabs this broken access key to the Chodon call, which causes her to have these surges of the One Power and actually hurts her, and then she quits fucking around in the exhibit hall and finally makes her way out of the palace, and it says, Tanjiko was larger than Tyr, perhaps larger than Camelon. So much to search, and she did not even know for what. For something that signified the presence of the Black Aja, or something that indicated some sort of danger to Rand if either existed here. Had she been a real dreamer, trained in the use of her talent, she would surely have known what to look for, how to interpret what she saw, but no one remained who could teach her. Aiel Wise ones supposedly knew how to decipher dreams. Avienda had been so reluctant to talk about the Wise Ones that Egwene had not asked any of the other Aiel. Perhaps a wise one could teach her, if she could find one. She took a step toward the square, and suddenly she was somewhere else. Great stone spires rose around her in a heat that sucked the moisture out of her breath. The sun seemed to bake right through her dress, and the breeze blowing in her face seemed to come from a stove. Stunted trees dotted a landscape almost bare of other growth, except for a few patches of tough grass and some prickly plants she did not recognize. She recognized the lion, however, even if she had never seen one in the flesh— It lay in a crevice in the rocks, not twenty paces away, black tufted tail twitching idly, looking not at her but at something another hundred strides on. The large boar covered in coarse hair was rooting and snuffling at the base of a thorny bush, never noticing the Aiel woman creeping up on it with a spear ready to thrust. Garbed like the Aiel in the stone, she had her shufa around her head, but her face uncovered. The waste, Egwene thought incredulously. I've jumped into the Aiel waste. When will I learn to watch what I think here? The Aiel woman froze. Her eyes were on Egwene now, not the boar. If it was a boar, it did not seem to be shaped exactly right. Egwene was sure the woman was not a wise one. Not dressed like a maiden. From what Egwene had been told, a maiden of the spear who wanted to become a wise one had to give up the spear. This had to be just an ideal woman who had dreamed herself into Teleron Riad, like that fellow in the palace. He would have seen her, too, if he had ever turned around. Egwene closed her eyes and concentrated on her one clear image of Tanchico, that huge skeleton in the great hall. When she opened them again, she was staring at the massive bones. They had been wired together, she noticed this time, quite cleverly, so that the wires hardly showed at all. The half-figurine with its crystal sphere was still on its shelf. She did not go near it any more than the black collar and bracelets that felt of so much pain and suffering. The Angrial, the stone woman, was a temptation. What are you going to do with it? Light, you're here to look, to search. Nothing more than that. Get on with it, woman. This time, she quickly found her way back to the square. Time passed differently here. Elaine and Nynaeve could be waking her up any moment, and she still had not even begun. There might be no more minutes to waste. She had to be careful of what she thought from here on. "'No more thinking about the wise ones. "'Even the admonition made everything lurch around her. "'Keep your mind on what you were doing,' she told herself firmly. "'She set out through the empty city, walking fast, sometimes trotting. "'Winding stone-paved streets slanted up and down, curving every which way, "'all empty except for green-backed pigeons and pale gray gulls "'that rose in thunderclaps of wings when she came close. "'White birds and not people.' Flies buzzed by, and she could see roaches and beetles scurrying along in the shadows. A pack of lean dogs, all different colors, loped across the street, far ahead of her. White dogs. And a bit further on, it says, Perhaps something inside the buildings. It was a small chance, a wild hope, but she was desperate enough to try anything. Almost anything. Time. How much time did she have left? She began running from doorway to doorway, putting her head into shops and inns and houses. Tables and benches stood in common rooms awaiting customers, as neatly arranged as the dully gleaming pewter mugs and plates on their shelves. The shops were as tidy as if the shopkeeper had just opened for the morning, yet while a tailor's tables held bolts of cloth and a cutler's knives and scissors, the ceiling hooks hung empty in a butcher's shop and the shelves stood bare. A finger run along anywhere picked up no dust at all. Everything was clean enough to suit her mother. In the narrower streets, there were homes, small, simple, white-plastered buildings with flat roofs and no windows onto the street, ready for families to walk in and sit on benches before cold fireplaces or around narrow tables with carved legs where a good wife's best bowl or platter was given pride of place. Clothes hung on pegs, pots hung from ceilings, hand tools lay on benches, waiting. On a hunt, she retraced her steps once, just to see, back a dozen doors, and peered a second time into what was some woman's home in the real world. It was almost the way it had been. Almost. The red-striped bowl that had been on the table was now a narrow blue vase. One of the benches, on it a broken harness and the tools for mending it, that had been near the fireplace, now sat by the door holding a darning basket and a child's embroidered dress. Why did it change? She wondered. But for that matter, why should it stay the same? Light, I don't know anything. There was a stable across the street, the white plaster showing large patches of brick, She trotted to it and pulled open one of the big doors. Straw covered the dirt floor, just as in every stable she had ever seen. But the stalls stood empty. No horses. Why? Something rustled in the straw, and she realized the stalls were not empty after all. Rats. Dozens of them, staring at her boldly, noses testing the air for her scent. None of the rats ran or even shied away. They behaved as if they had more right there than she. In spite of herself, she stepped back. Pigeons and gulls and dogs, flies and rats. Maybe a wise one would know why. As suddenly as that, she was back in the waste. So he does this really good job of having her kind of run all over the place, trying to find clues for the Black Aja, and in the meantime, she's asking herself questions. And in throwing out these questions, it allows the reader to be like, well, no horses, but dogs. They're running in packs, so they must be feral dogs, which are wild animals, like the rats and the bugs and the gulls, but horses are domestic. This is the first time we really get an idea of how changeable some things are in the world of dreams. As Egwene runs back and forth and sees that things move... And again, RJ is having her ask questions, which encourages the reader to speculate. And in the meantime, because her mind is wandering around and she's asking all these questions, it keeps popping her back into the waste. So as she's teaching herself, she finds herself a teacher. Amis is in Teleron Riyadh, using it for recreation, an underrated, though admittedly dangerous application of the world of dreams that I wish we saw more of. She's remembering her days of being a maiden of the spear, enjoying a solo hunt that Egwene keeps accidentally interrupting, much to our novice dreamer's frustration. During this second instance, she's stuck in a standoff with Amis, fearful of being stabbed while she's not looking as she's trying to get away, and it says, She simply needed the woman to lower her spear, just long enough to feel safe closing her eyes, to take herself back to Tanchico, back to what she was supposed to be doing. She had no more time for these flights of fancy. She was not entirely sure someone who had only dreamed themselves into Tele Ron Riad could harm her the way other things there could, but she was not going to risk finding out with an ideal spear point. The ideal woman should vanish in a few moments, something to put her off balance and tell them. Changing her clothes was easy. As soon as the thought came, McGwain was wearing the same browns and greys as the woman. I mean you no harm, she said, outwardly calm. The woman did not lower her weapon. Instead, she frowned and said, "'You have no right to wear cadents, sore, girl.' And Egwene found herself standing there in her skin, the sun burning her from overhead, the ground searing her bare feet. For a moment, she gaped in disbelief, dancing from foot to foot. She had not thought it was possible to change things about someone else. So many possibilities, so many rules that she did not know. Hurriedly, she thought herself back into stout shoes and the dark dress with its divided skirts, and at the same time made the Aiel woman's garments vanish. She had to draw in Sidar to do it. The woman must have been concentrating on keeping Egwene naked. She had a flow ready to seize the spear if the other woman made to throw it. It was the Aiel woman's turn to look shocked. She let the spear fall to her side, too, and Egwene seized the moment to shut her eyes and take herself back to Tanchico, back to the skeleton of that huge boar, or whatever it was. She barely gave it a second glance this time. She was growing tired of things that looked like bores and were not. How did she do that? No, it's wondering about how and why that keeps pulling me off the path. This time I'll stick to it. She did hesitate, though. Just as she had closed her eyes, it had seemed she saw another woman, beyond the ideal woman, watching them both. A golden-haired woman holding a silver bow. You were letting wild fancies take you now. You've been listening to too many of Tom Maryland's stories. Birgitta was long dead. She could not come again until the Horn of Valir called her back from the grave. Dead women, even heroes of legend, surely could not dream themselves into Teleron Riyadh." So, she gets back out into the streets of Tanchico again, and she sees someone else dream themselves into the world of dreams for a moment, who flies up into the air before vanishing, and she's like, "'Oh, that's a great idea!' So she continues her reconnaissance by drone until it finally occurs to her, if she can see them, they can see her. So she switches to hovercraft mode and zooms along at street level, and eventually Amis manages to find her and yells at her about the danger and how foolish she is, and then says, come learn from me, come to Cold Rock's hold and learn, because obviously you need some help or you're going to get yourself killed. Perrin's first experience in Teleron Riyadh, in this book has some similarities to Egwene's. He returns to the two rivers, and as they're exiting the Ways, they're attacked by Trollocs and Murdral, and they have a fight at the Waygate where the Black Wind comes, and they barely manage to escape. If Shadowspawn and the Ways were not bad enough, he can't find any wolves when he reaches out to them, and he also notices something very strange happen far down the valley, and he's kind of like, what the hell? Something is not right here. So he goes into Teleron Riyadh to scout. He tells Gall, hey, you need to take the first watch and you might need to kick me awake. The strange thing that he notices far down the valley is someone shooting at a pair of hawks. <clears throat> Somebody who likes to slay animals, maybe. He hits one of them, and ravens attack the second one, and Perrin's watching it from a distance with his wolfy eyes and is like, What the ever-loving hell? Why would someone shoot a hawk way up here? The only call you'd have to shoot a hawk is if it were after your chickens, and nobody's got chickens up in the fucking mountains. And so he decides that between the wolves being silent and the Trollocs and the mystery archer, some recon is in order. So he enters the dream. He has the visions of Matt and Elaine and Nynaeve and Egwene, and then he starts calling for Hopper. And it says, But Hopper did not come. This was all useless. He was there for a reason, and he might as well get on with it. At best, getting down to where he had seen the raven's rise would take hours. He took a step. The land around him blurred, and his foot came down near a narrow brook beneath stunted hemlock and mountain willow, with cloud-capped peaks towering above. For a moment he stared in amazement. He was at the far end of the valley from the waygate. In fact, he was at the very spot he had been aiming for, the place where the ravens had come from and the arrow that killed the first hawk. Such a thing had never happened to him before. Was he learning more of the wolf dream? Hopper had always said he was ignorant, or was it different this time? He was more cautious with his next step, but it was only a step. There was no evidence of archer or ravens, no track, no feather, no scent. He was not sure what he had expected, There would be no sign unless they had been in the dream, too. But if he could find wolves in the dream, they could help him find their brothers and sisters in the waking world, and those wolves could tell him if there were shadowspawn in the mountains. Perhaps if he were higher up, they could hear him call. Fixing his eye on the highest peak bordering the valley, just below the clouds, he stepped. The world blurred, and he was standing on the mountainside with white billows not five spans overhead. In spite of himself, he laughed. This was fun— From here, he could see the entire valley stretched out below. "'Hopper!' No answer. He leaped to the next mountain, calling, and the next and the next, eastward, toward the two rivers. Hopper did not answer. More troubling, Perrin did not sense any other wolves, either. There were always wolves in the wolf dream. Always. From peak to peak, he sped in blurred motion, calling, seeking. The mountains lay empty beneath him except for deer and other game. Yet there were occasional signs of men, ancient signs. Twice, great carved figures took nearly an entire mountainside, and in another place, strange angular letters, two spans high, had been incised across a cliff, a shade too smooth and sheer. Weathering had worn away the figures' faces, and eyes less sharp than his might have taken the letters themselves for the work of wind and rain. Mountains and cliffs gave way to the sand hills, great rolling mounds sparsely covered with tough grass and stubborn bushes, once the shore of a great sea before the breaking and suddenly he saw another man atop a sandy hill. The fellow was too distant to see clearly, just a tall, dark-haired man, but plainly not a trollock or anything of the sort, in a blue coat with a bow on his back, stooping over something on the ground hidden by the low brush, yet there was something familiar about him. The wind rose, and Perrin caught his smell faintly, a cold scent. That was the only way to describe it. Cold, and not really human." Suddenly, his own bow was in his hand, an arrow knocked, and the weight of a filled quiver tugged at his belt. The other man looked up, saw Perrin. For a heartbeat, he hesitated, then turned and became a streak slashing away across the hills. Perrin leaped down to where he had stood, stared at what had occupied the fellow, and without thought pursued, leaving the half skinned corpse of a wolf behind. A dead wolf in the wolf dream. It was unthinkable. What could kill a wolf here? Something evil. His prey ran ahead of him in strides that covered miles, never more than barely in sight. Out of the hills and across the tangled westwood with its wide-scattered farms, over cleared farmland, a quilt of hedged fields and small thickets, and past Watch Hill. It was odd to see the thatched village houses covering the hill with no people in the streets and farmhouses standing as if abandoned, but he kept his eye on the man fleeing ahead of him. He had become so used to this pursuit that he felt no surprise when one leaping stride put him down on the south bank of the River Terran and the next amid barren hills without trees or grass. North and east he ran, over streams and roads and villages and rivers, intent only on the man ahead. The land grew flat and grassy, broken by scattered thickets without any sign of man. Then something glittered ahead, sparkling in the sun, a tower of metal. His quarry sped straight for it and vanished. Two leaps brought Perrin there as well. Two hundred feet, the tower rose, and forty thick, gleaming like burnished steel. It might as well have been a solid column of metal. Perrin walked around it twice without seeing any opening, not so much as a crack, not even a mark on that smooth, sheer wall. The smell hung here, though, that cold, inhuman stink. The trail ended here. The man, if man he was, had gone inside somehow. He only had to find the way to follow. Stop! It was a raw flow of emotion that Perrin's mind put a word to. Stop! So this is a great scene, because it shows Perrin, in his first time in Teleronbriod in The Shadow Rising, learning and experimenting, just as Egwene was doing many chapters before. Just as Egwene discovers, Oh, I can fly around the city of Tanchico, he sees, Oh, I can take these jumping steps and bounce from mountain to mountain. I can immediately think a bow into existence when I go into hunting mode. And, much as Egwene did, Perrin asks himself questions as he's experimenting. And RJ makes it a point to have him ask, Am I learning more about the rules of this world, or are the things that it's doing now different than they were before? Which is a sly acknowledgement to the reader that the world of dreams is still being developed, and that its presentation in Book 4 is very different than in Book 3, while also teasing us, Is it really different, or does Perrin just know more? So Perrin comes upon the Tower of Genji, where Slayer pretended to disappear. I doubt he went in there. It doesn't make any sense for him to. I'm assuming once he was out of sight behind the tower, he immediately went out into the Waking World and back to the Two Rivers or something. But because Perrin can smell him, he assumes that he went inside. And Hopper's like, stop, tom your tits, Slayer can kill. And unlike Egwene, Perrin gets more than a glimpse of Birgitta. He's really upset. He didn't think a wolf could die in the wolf dream, and so he's debating how to get into the tower, because he's pretty damn determined to get to slay her. And it says, A dangerous place, Archer. The Tower of Genji is a bad place for humankind. Perrin whirled, half-raising his bow before he saw the woman standing a few paces away, her golden hair in a thick braid to her waist, almost the way women wore it in the two rivers, but more intricately woven. Her clothes were oddly cut, a short white coat and voluminous trousers of some thin pale yellow material gathered at the ankles above short boots. Her dark cloak seemed to hide something that glinted silver at her side. She shifted and the metallic flicker vanished. You have sharp eyes, Archer. I thought that the first time I saw you. How long had she been watching? It was embarrassing that she had sneaked up without him hearing. At the least Hopper should have warned him. The wolf was lying down in the knee-high grass, muzzle on his forepaws, watching him. The woman seemed vaguely familiar, though Perrin was certain he would have remembered her had he ever seen her before. Who was she to be in the wolf dream? Or was it Moraine's Teleron Riyadh, too? Are you Aes Sedai? "'No, Archer,' she laughed. "'I only came to warn you, despite the prescripts, "'Once entered, the Tower of Genji is hard enough to leave in the world of men. "'Here it is all but impossible. "'You have a bannerman's courage, which some say cannot be told from foolhardiness.'" So in Book 4, we learn that, along with everything else, Teleron Riad is a green room for Heroes of the Horn, where they hang out until it's their time to go on stage. And the fact that the heroes wait there is one of my favorite things about it. However meh I am about the Horn of Valyr being the mechanic that calls them forth, the heroes themselves, I think, are pretty cool. And the fact that they have a special staging area where they can chill between lives makes them extra. I love it. Brigida is looking out for our dumbass protagonists and trying to save them from themselves with the knowledge that she has, She'll tell them later, "'Look, I'm not as cool as it sounds like I am. "'I'm just trying to help out, but I have less power here than you do. "'I'm just an archer.'" But she's an archer with a vast supply of practical knowledge and common sense. I really appreciate the character of Birgitta, who watches over and provides aid to all of our friends, especially Nynaeve. Egwene gives Nynaeve and Elaine the twisted stone ring so that they can use Teleron Riyadh as a meeting place. She goes off to the Aiel Waste to learn from the Wise Ones. They decide to go just the two of them to Chanchico in order to pursue the Black Aja and try to find whatever it is that is dangerous to rant. And it's agreed that they will just meet every few days in Teleron Riyadh to trade information. And this meeting in Teleron Riyadh is something that they continue to do even after traveling is rediscovered which I've heard people wonder why you would keep doing it once you can travel, but I think Iron Riyadh is like the Zoom of the world of the Wheel of Time, and I feel like it's obvious why you would continue to meet there even once traveling is rediscovered. You don't have to put any pants on, and unless you fuck up and flash somebody, no one will ever know. Egwene attends the first meeting without the wise one's permission, and she gets yanked out of the world of dreams right in the middle of a conversation with Elaine, as Elaine's like, tell Rand I meant what I said in probably the first letter she was likely trying to differentiate so he'd know that she didn't mean what she said in the second letter. But because Egwene gets yanked out in the middle with RJ's comic timing, she ends up just encouraging Avienda to tell Rand that Elaine meant what she said in her letters, which of course confuses Rand more. Because Egwene gets yanked out of Teleron Riyadh and then terrorized by a Meese in monster form, who's like, you broke your word, you said you wouldn't go in without me, here you are, Elaine and Nynaeve don't know what happened to her for days, and so they keep checking into the Heart of the Stone every single night looking for her. From Nynaeve's point of view, their first night in Tanchico, it says, the Heart of the Stone was quite empty. Peering into the dimness among the great columns, Nynaeve had circled Kalindor, sparkling out of the floor stones completely before she realized she was still in her shift, the leather cord dangling about her neck with the two rings. She frowned, and after a moment she was wearing a Two Rivers dress of good brown wool and stout shoes. Elaine and Egwene both seemed to find this sort of thing easy, but it was not easy for her. There had been embarrassing moments in an earlier visits to tel Iron Riyadh, mostly after stray thoughts of Lon. but changing her garb deliberately took concentration. Just that, remembering, and her dress was silk and as transparent as Rendra's veil. Berylene would have blushed. So did Nynaeve, thinking of Lon seeing her in it. It took an effort to bring the brown wool back. Worse, her anger had faded. She's mad because Elaine got faced, And the true source might as well not exist so far as she was concerned. Perhaps it would not matter. Uneasy, she stared into the forest of huge redstone columns, turning in one spot. What had made Egwene leave here abruptly? The stone was silent, with a hollow emptiness. She could hear the blood rushing in her own ears, yet the skin between her shoulder blades prickled as if someone were watching her. "'Egwene?' Her shout echoed in the silence among the columns. "'Egwene!' "'Nothing.' Rubbing her hands on her skirt, she found she was holding a gnarled stick with a thick knob on the end. A fat lot of good that would do, but she tightened her grip on it. A sword might be more use. For an instant, the stick flickered, half a sword, but she did not know how to use a sword. She laughed to herself ruefully. A cudgel was as good as a sword here, both practically useless. Channeling was the only real defense, that and running, which left her only one choice at the moment. She wanted to run now with that feel of eyes on her, but she would not give up so quickly. Only what was she to do? Egwene was not here. She was somewhere in the waste, Roydy and Elaine said, wherever that was. Between one step and the next, she was suddenly on a mountainside, with a harsh sun rising over more jagged mountains beyond the valley below, baking the dry air. The waste? She was in the waste? For a moment, the sun startled her, but the waste was far enough east for sunrise there to still be night in Tanchico. In Teleron Riyadh, it made no difference anyway. sun or darkness there seemed to bear no relation to what was in the real world as far as she could determine. Long pale shadows still covered almost half the valley, but strangely a mass of fog billowed down there, not seeming to grow less for the sun beating on it. Great towers rose out of the fog, some appearing unfinished. A city? In the waste? Squinting, she could make out a person down in the valley, too. A man, though all she could see at this distance was someone who seemed to be wearing breeches and a bright blue coat. Certainly not an ideal. He was walking along the edge of the fog, every now and again stopping to poke at it. She could not be sure, but she thought his hand stopped short each time. Maybe it was not fog at all. "'You must get away from here,' a woman's voice said urgently. "'If that one sees you, you are dead or worse.' Nynaeve jumped, spinning with her club raised, nearly losing her footing on the slope." The woman standing a little above her wore a short white coat and voluminous pale yellow trousers gathered above short boots. Her cloak billowed on an arid gust of wind. It was her long golden braid, intricately braided, and the silver bow in her hands that made a name pop incredulously into Nynaeve's mouth. Bergita, Bergita, hero of a hundred tales, and her silver bow with which she never missed. Bergita, one of the dead heroes the Horn of Valir would call back from the grave to fight in the last battle. It's impossible. Who are you? There is no time, woman. You must go before he sees. In one smooth motion, she pulled a silver arrow from the quiver at her waist, knocked it, and drew Fletching to ear. The silver arrow had pointed straight at Nynaeve's heart. Go! Nynaeve fled. She was not sure how, but she was standing on the green in Emmons' field, looking at the winespring inn with its chimneys and red tile roof. Thatched roofs surrounded the green, where the winespring gushed out of a stone outcrop. The sun stood high here, though the two rivers lay far west of the waste. Yet despite a cloudless sky, a deep shadow lay across the village. She had only a moment to wonder how they were doing without her. A flicker of movement caught her eye a flash of silver, and a woman ducking behind the corner of Ailis Candwyn's neat house beyond the Winespring Water. Brigida. Nynaeve did not hesitate. She ran for one of the footbridges across the narrow rushing stream. Her shoes pounded on the wooden planks. "'Come back here!' she shouted. "'You come back here and answer me. "'Who was that? "'You come back here or I'll hero you. "'I'll thump you so you think you've had an adventure.' "'Rounding the corner of Ayliss's house, "'she really only half expected to see Brigida. "'What she did not expect at all "'was a man in a dark coat trotting toward her "'less than a hundred paces down the hard-packed dirt street. "'Her breath caught. "'Lon!' "'No, but he had the same shape to his face, "'the same eyes. "'Halting, he raised his bow and shot at her.' screaming, she threw herself aside, trying to claw her way awake. So Brigida threatens Nynaeve to chase her away from Asmodian, who is around the fog wall of roydian which cannot be entered until Iron Riyad. He’s trying to poke at it because he wants to get into the city. He thinks that there might be something there for him, something cool that’s a much better prospect than being Luce Theron Reborn’s teacher. So Brigida ends up threatening to shoot Nynaeve to get her to fuck off, and instead she ends up getting winged by Esom. But Archie gives Egwene teachers in the world of dreams in the form of the wise ones, and Perrin gets a teacher in the form of Hopper, and then Elaine and Nynaeve have an instructor of sorts in Birgitta, who chooses to aid them as a way to fight the shadow. And the knowledge that she shares, which along with what Egwene passes on and what they wheedle out of the wise ones as the wise ones accuse them of doing, allows them to reasonably navigate the world of dreams in such a way that they are able to instruct Aes Sedai on how to use it as well later on. Nynaeve runs into Brigida a second time, several days later. She and Elaine have been stymied in their search. The attitude in the city is very hostile, and so they end up being kind of locked down and stuck in their inn. They're pretty sure that the thing that is a danger to Rand is in the Panarch's palace. They know that the Black Aja is there, but they don't know if the Panarch is helping them or if she's their prisoner. So, Nynaeve goes to meet with Egwene, and during the meeting, she asks the Wise Ones for help. And it says, The Black Aja is sitting on top of something that can harm Rand. If they find it before we do, they may be able to control him. We need to find it first. If there is anything you can do to help, anything you can tell me, anything at all, I said I, Amis said. You can make a request for help sound a demand. Nynaeve's mouth tightened. Demand. She had all but begged. Demand indeed, but the ideal woman did not seem to notice, or chose to ignore it. Yet a danger to Randal Thor. We cannot allow the shadow to have that. There is a way. A little further on it says, It is dangerous, Amis said. They made it sound as if breathing was dangerous until Iran Riyadh. I, ran Riyad. I- cut off as Amise's eyes actually grew harder. She would not have thought it possible. "'I will be careful.' "'It is not possible,' Amise told her flatly, "'but I do not know another way. "'Need is the key. "'When there are too many people for the hold, "'the set must divide, "'and the need is for water at the new hold. "'If no location with water is known, "'one of us may be called to find one. "'The key, then, is the need for our proper valley or canyon, "'not too far from the first with water.' "'Concentrating on that need will bring you near to what you want. "'Concentrating on the need again will bring you closer. "'Each step brings you nearer, until at last you are not only in the valley, "'but standing beside where the water is to be found. "'It may be harder for you because you do not know exactly what you are seeking, "'though the depth of need may make up for it, "'and you know already in a rough fashion where it lies, in this palace. "'The danger is this, and you must be aware of it.' The wise one leaned toward her intently, driving her words home with a tone as sharp as her gaze. Each step is made blind, with eyes closed. You cannot know where you will be when you open your eyes, and finding the water does no good if you are standing in a den of vipers. The fangs of a mountain king kill as quickly in the dream as waking. I think these women Egwene speaks of will kill more quickly than the snake. I did that, Egwene exclaimed. niney felt her jump as the Aiel woman's eyes went to her. Before I met you, she said hastily, before we went to Tear, Need. Naini felt warmer toward the Aiel women now that one of them had given her something she could use. So, Egwene used it in the Dragon Reborn. She directed a flow of the One Power into Corian and Nidale's Terran and was like, take me where I need to go, take me where the answers are, and then opened her eyes in the Stone of Tear. whereupon she was greeted by Lanfear in the form of Old Sylvie, offering her the answers that she needed. So, Nynaeve uses need. With her first blind step, she finds out that the Panarch is indeed a prisoner of the Black Aja. She appears right in the Panarch's bedroom behind Tamila Kinderode, the sadistic Grey, who is tormenting the Panarch of Tarabon, and she's like, that's basically landing in a pit of snakes right there. And then she gets to the exhibit hall and she comes across Mogedon. She sees this woman and she's like, she makes my head hurt. She's, she's like, triggering a memory. And it comes back to her, because Mogedian showed up at their hotel and compelled her and Elaine one day. After feeling Elaine channel in the streets, Mogedian tracked them down and compelled them to find out all their information. And understandably, Nynaeve isn't the sort of person that compulsion has a satisfactory or lasting effect on, so seeing Mogedian in the world of dreams is all it takes to trigger her memory. And she's so mad that she's getting ready to reach for the One Power because she's just going to fuck Mogedian up, believing her to just be a member of the Black Aja. And it says, Before she could reach for the true source, Birgitta was suddenly beside the next column in that short white coat and wide yellow trousers gathered at the ankle. Birgitta, or some woman dreaming she was Birgitta, with golden hair and an elaborate braid. A warning finger pressed against her lips. She pointed at Nineve, then urgently toward one of the double-arched doorways behind them. Bright blue eyes compelling, she vanished. Nynaeve shook her head. Whoever the woman was, she had no time. Opening herself to Sidar, she turned, filled to overflowing with the one power and righteous wrath. The woman clothed in mist was gone. Gone! Because that golden-haired fool had distracted her. Perhaps that one was still about waiting for her, wrapped in the power she strode through the doorway the woman had indicated. The golden-haired woman was waiting in a brightly carpeted hallway where unlit golden lamps gave off the scent of perfumed oil. She held a silver bow now, and a quiver of silver arrows hung at her waist. "'Who are you?' Nynaeve demanded, furiously. She would give the woman a chance to explain herself, and then teach her a lesson she would not soon forget— "'Are you the same fool who shot at me in the waist, claiming she was Brigida? "'I was about to teach a member of the Black Aja manners when you let her get away.' "'I am Brigida, the woman said, leaning on her bow. "'At least that is the name you would know. "'And the lesson might have been yours, here as surely as in the Threefold Land.' I remember the lives I have lived as if they were books well read, the longer gone dimmer than the nearer, but I remember well when I thought at Luce Theron's side, I will never forget Mogedian's face, any more than I will forget the face of Asmodian, the man you almost disturbed at Roydian. And so, Birgitta is a great character, not only because she can give Elaine and Nynaeve information about Teleron Riyadh and show us yet another perspective of the world of dreams. She's also great because she has all of this dirt on the Forsaken, and she's able to give Nynaeve a heads up about, hey, yo, you're here in Tanchico and you're actually in for an even greater shit show than you realize, so just as a heads up. After she's done talking to Brigida, Nynaeve uses Need to kind of hop through the exhibition hall, and she ends up finding the domination bands and realizing, oh, this is the thing that's dangerous to Rand. This is what we're here for, this is what we need to get. And while Need could be criticized as a lazy plot device, I really like it because it adds to the whole magic of Tele eyran Riyadh, which is about desire and will and what you can manifest just based upon the strength of your thoughts. The soft magic of it leaves room for anything to be possible, while Jordan's rich and detail-filled world-building makes things feel real, and so I don't mind need as a plot device because it's sort of like, why not? Why not? Teleron Riyadh is like the multi-tool of the Wheel of Time, and in The Shadow Rising, we begin to see more of its functions and learn more of its properties. We observe phenomenon without necessarily knowing what they mean, Going forward, when in each book we're given inevitable recap about Talleyrand Riyadh, characters will tell us that ephemeral things have dimmer reflections. They'll tell us that bulls or vases are more likely to move, that domestic animals don't have reflections, that unseen eyes watch them, light comes from everywhere, time is deceptive, and so on and so on. But over the course of the narrative of this book, they experience these things for the first time, mostly learning by doing as they use this world to scout and to communicate, and we're encouraged to use our brains and puzzle out the world of dreams with them. It has always been one of the most surprising and enjoyable things about The Wheel of Time for me. This play within a play, a world surrounding a world, wheels within wheels... Like a snake eating its tail. I'm just gonna end it weird like that. Kinda like a dream. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Obviously, my goal of having no more than three weeks between episodes wasn't achieved, so I'm going to stop having goals. I'd like to thank Giordo and the Wadaholic Aussie for being so nice to me about it in Discord after hearing my lament on the last episode of the Wheel of Time Spoilers podcast. There's a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to hear me talk with Seth and a radio about Egwene's badassery as she whips the Saladar Hall into shape. This episode's accompanying mini on Patreon is a moderately stoned ramble about the Heroes of the Horn and what they get up to in Iran Riyadh. If you'd like to support the show and have access to that or other fun content, there's a link in the show notes. There are other links to Discord, my email, the Watt Trivia Games Discord, and the Watt Fandom and Calendar Discord, and also a link to my YouTube. You should go and subscribe, and my Twitter handle, at Pod of the Dragon. There's also a link to Apple Podcasts. If you could review my show, I'd appreciate it because it will help other people find me, and so will word of mouth. So if you know anyone who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin MacLeod. My name is Morgan. And whenever I imagine Egwene soaring through the air doing her reconnaissance over Chico, I always see her in a nightgown for some reason. It only just occurred to me that that must come from Peter Pan. Or Mary Poppins? What is it with Egwene and the Disney shit?